Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Welcome. Welcome to Advent Chapel. That's where you're at. If you didn't know that yet, you're in chapel, and it is Advent. I know if you've been zoned out till now, welcome. I know it happens. We're getting there. We're getting to the end of the semester, so I get it. it happens to the best of us. Advent. What is it? For some of you, if you grew up in the church like I did, or if you didn't grow up in church at all, that word, that concept might mean little to nothing to you, or you might have no clue what it is. Advent is a season in the Christian year, the Christian calendar, and even that term, if you grew up in a church like I did, or not in church at all, might be completely foreign to you. But for a long, long time, Christians have not only operated on this January, February, March, April, May type of calendar, they have also operated on a calendar with seasons oriented around the life of Christ. And so Advent is the first season in that year. You may have also heard of, of Christmas and, and Lent. So Advent is the first season in the Christian year and it's the season that comes before Christmas. It leads up to Christmas. And what I think that we have done, if you do know about Advent, if you've heard of it, what you probably know of it as is the time that leads up to Christmas, the countdown to Christmas. You know, we get our little Advent calendars with the chocolates in them, and we take out one every day, and we count down the days till Christmas. I don't know if anybody's moms do that, but that's kind of what we know about Advent right now. It's kind of, we kind of treat it as like a, if you've ever been to a concert where you were there to see like the headliner, you were there to see like the main person, the main band, and then they got these opening acts that you just kind of got to like, cheer them on and like act happy and like act like you're enjoying it, but you're like, yo, come on, like bring out the headliner. That's how we treat Advent. We treat Advent like the opening act sometimes, if we even acknowledge it at all. We treat it like the countdown to Christmas and we're just waiting to get there. We're just waiting to get to Christmas. But I'm here to tell you that Advent is spiritually significant in and of itself and Advent is not just about counting down the days till Christmas. Advent, it means coming or arrival. It's talking about the coming or arrival of the Lord, and, and Tyler hinted at this in that prayer that he just prayed, is that it's talking about this threefold arrival. It's a past, a present, and a future reality. Jesus, the Lord, came in the past in the form of a baby, in the form of a man. He comes into our lives right now as we speak, as we gather, as we accept his message, and he will come again back in the flesh, second coming, and we look towards that day and we wait on it and we wait on all of these things and we celebrate all of these things in the season of Advent. The Lord who was and is and is to come, who has come, is coming and will come. Advent is about joyfully and expectantly waiting on the coming of the Lord into our lives now and when he will come again. Now I can say all that and it stays up here. It's so theoretical, but how do we actually do that? How do we ground level? How do we go about waiting on the Lord's coming? How do we go about it? And to dive into that question, I wanna read one of the passages that the church has historically read throughout Advent and it's in Matthew chapter three, verses one through 12. If you wanna turn there with me, you can. The words are gonna be up on the screen. It's Matthew chapter three, verses one through 12. Here it is. 
In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes he who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, if you've been sticking with me, if you've been paying attention, you might be a little bit confused right now. Because I said that this was about joyfully and expectantly waiting, and then I went and read a passage about fire and brimstone, and we're judging people. I heard some uncomfortable laughs right there, like, yeah. <laughs> and I promise that if you stick with me, for the rest of the time, we might see that those two concepts, the joyful and expectant waiting, and then the, the, the repentance aspect are not opposed to one another, but they work together. So if you stick with me, I think we will reach that point. First thing to point out about this passage is that I think I had read this like several times, uh, and a lot of times, you know, heard it growing up, John the Baptist, you usually hear about him when you go through the gospels. I had read it to the point where I had like normalized what was going on here. It's important to realize that what's going on here is not normal, even in this context. Think about it, there's a dude wearing camel's hair, eating bugs in the wilderness, dunking people in a river. That's not normal, even in that context. All their worship was centralized around the temple. So people going out into the wilderness, getting dunked in the water as like this one time, like turnaround type of thing is not normal. So that's the first thing to realize is that it's not normal. And we realize that especially in, in literature and in the Bible, that when something is abnormal, there's usually something very significant about it. So what's significant about what is going on here? Elijah. John the Baptist, everything about his character signals that he is the Elijah who is to come. This is an Old Testament concept where, where they, they believed, and it's in the Old Testament and the prophets especially, that they believed that Elijah would come back and precede, precede the Lord's coming. He would precede the coming of the Messiah. And if you know anything about Elijah, he was kind of an eccentric dude too. And so everything about John the Baptist's character, from, from the way he's dressing, to, to what he's doing, to this message of repentance that he is preaching is signaling, this is the Elijah who they talked about. He has the spirit of Elijah on him. So he's preaching this message of repentance. And, and this message of repentance in the Old Testament is, 
It's a really, it's a pretty simple concept, and it's about turning away from sin and turning towards God. If you read the Old Testament prophets especially, this concept is going to come up over and over and over again. God is constantly calling the people of Israel, turn away from your sins, turn towards me. That's the message. That was Elijah's message. That was the rest of the prophets' message. That is John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then why baptism? Because, okay, as Christians, we've normalized baptism as well. We, we think of baptism as like the normal thing that you do. Recognize that in this time and in this passage, that's not a normal thing either. And there's different theories about why baptism. Why is John using baptism uh, as this sort of sign or, or this ritual? And some people would say that it's like associated with temple rituals about cleansing and they would use water to cleanse themselves. But I think the one that holds the most merit, the theory that holds the most merit and the most weight is this idea of Gentile convert baptism. That if you were a Gentile, if you were not a Jew, if you were not part of God's chosen people by ethnicity, and you wanted, but you wanted to, to be a Jew by religion, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized. And it was this sort of, same sort of once, one-time baptism. So it was this conversion sort of baptism. And don't miss this then that when these people go out into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist, they are associating themselves spiritually with the Gentiles. They are making themselves out to be spiritual Gentiles. And what that means, if you read the Old Testament, they do not speak kindly of the Gentiles many times. Spiritually, it would not be something that you wanted to be. So it's a very humble act. When you're saying, spiritually, yeah, I'm the same as them, so I need to be baptized into repentance. It's this very, very humble act. So when we frame it like that, it makes a lot more sense that when the religious leaders show up, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they show up and John starts like going off on them. It's like, where does that come from? Well, it's because they didn't have that sort of humble, repentant attitude. John tells them straight up, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent, live a life that proves that you are humble, that proves that you realize you are in need of God. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then all that judgment talk, he's telling them, because you are not living a life that is turning towards God, because you are not living a life that is oriented towards God, you are setting yourself up for judgment. You are heaping judgment upon yourself. And so that passage, when we read it, when we read that last part about the fire and and the, the, the wheat and the chaff, it can scare us. I know it scared me whenever I read that, but, but John is saying really to the Pharisees, like, all you gotta do is repent. All you gotta do is turn. But if you're not going to, then you're, you're heaping judgment upon your own head. So we get this contrast. We have the people who are being baptized, the humble, the repentant, and we have the religious leaders who are not being baptized. We have a contrast between these two groups. We have those on the one hand who are admitting that they're facing, that currently they are facing in the wrong direction. Not an easy thing to do sometimes. Not that long ago, I bought a pair of shoes online, and it came in, and I got them out the box. I was like, 
dang, these are fresh, you know, like I'm, I'm excited to wear these, you know what I'm saying? And, and I tried them on and guess what? They didn't fit. So sad. And so I was like, you know what? I could, I could ship them back, but I don't want to deal with all the hassle of that, you know, like printing out the label and all that stuff. So, you know what? I'm just going to drive them back. I'm, the, the store was in Kokomo that I, that I bought them from online. So I was like, I'm just going to drive to Kokomo. And so put them in my car one day. I start driving towards Kokomo, uh, or so I thought. Um, if you know me, you know I'm like so directionally challenged. Like I'm really bad. And so what I didn't realize is that I missed a turn very early on. But I wasn't willing to admit to myself that that may have been a possibility. <laughs> And so I kept driving. I'm like, dang, like, I'm kind of scratching my head because like, this drive doesn't look that familiar, but like, you know, I'm not that observant anyway, so like, that could make sense. And then I reached this town that I was not supposed to reach. It's Elwood, I think. If you guys, yeah, the people that are like from around here or are not directionally challenged are laughing because they're like, dude, you drove like 30 minutes. Yeah, I drove 30 minutes in the wrong way. And it was not until that point that I was finally willing to admit that I was facing in the wrong direction. I was facing the wrong direction. It's not an easy thing to do. I could, the minute that doubt came into my mind, it would not have hurt to pull out my phone. Hey Siri, take me to Kokomo. Did I do that? No, because of pride, all right? So I was not willing to, to admit that I was facing in the wrong direction and turn around. This is the same problem that the religious leaders in this passage have. They're not willing to admit that they may be facing in the wrong direction for all they know, for all they think they are facing in the right direction. I thought so too. Clearly I was wrong. We have those who are willing to admit that they're facing in the wrong direction versus those who are in denial. We have those who are humble versus those who are prideful. We have those who admit their helplessness spiritually on their own versus those who want to depend on their own identity as children of Abraham, not realizing that God does not look at the external appearance or any external factors, but he looks at the heart. We have those, catch this, who are opening themselves up to the kingdom of God versus those who are blocking themselves from the kingdom of God. Those who are opening themselves up to receive the kingdom of God versus those who are blocking the kingdom of God from their own hearts and lives through their unrepentance. We have those who are opening themselves up to step into and participate in the kingdom of God versus those who are putting a wall in front of themselves that would keep them from entering the kingdom of God by their unrepentance. And this is John's whole message. This is his whole thing. Go back to the beginning of the passage. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then we get this weird follow-up with like this citation from Isaiah where it's talking about make straight the ways of the Lord. And I always kind of just thought that that meant that John came before Jesus. You know, simple as that. Not as simple as that. What's the connection between repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and this is he who, who makes straight the paths for the Lord? That citation from Isaiah in that passage in verse, verse three, it comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Matthew was quoting the Old Testament here. And in the verse, it's Isaiah 40 verses three and four. I'm gonna read those verses. Listen closely. Isaiah 40 chapter three. Chapter 40, verses three through four. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Those mountains and valleys shall be made level. When we repent, the mountains of sin, those obstacles, those things keeping us from God are made low, they're made level. Those valleys of the things that we are neglecting, love, justice, mercy, when we repent, when we turn towards God, they are made level. And we make straight the way for the Lord. This is not, this is a metaphor and it is a beautiful one. When we repent, the mountains of sin, the valleys of that which we are neglecting are made level and we make straight a way for the Lord. We make straight a path for his coming into the world and the kingdom of God and into our own hearts and lives. So it's clear which group we wanna be in. We wanna be in this group, the humble, the repentant, those who are admitting their helplessness on their own, So what keeps us over here? Why do we stay here? Seems obvious enough that that's where we wanna be, so why do we stay over here? Why do we not repent? What keeps us from repenting? I think it's different for different people. And I'm about to make an oversimplification, but, but stick with me for the sake of simplicity. I think there are rule breakers and rule followers. How many of you would admit with me, I am too, that you're a rule follower? Yep, okay, we get like a lot of flack and stuff because we're like lame or something like that, I don't know. It's kind of true sometimes, I'm, I'm not even gonna lie because it's like, oh my gosh, no, I can't do that. But it's, yeah, it's all right, we get it. Rule breakers, raise your hand. Less of you, all right. Those of you who are just like, rules are made to be broken, you're like angsty, you are probably angsty at one point in your life. Uh, you know, listening to like alternative music and stuff, I never really went through that phase, but I know some of y'all did because you were like, I relate, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So we got rule followers, we got rule breakers. I think the thing that keeps us, and it's a spectrum, I, I get it, so, so here, listen to both sides as I speak and you can maybe change your answer then. Rule breakers, we talked in chapel a, a couple weeks about, a couple weeks ago about sins of commission versus sins of omission. I think in sins of commission with a C at the beginning are things that, that keep, or things that we actually do. Actions, you know, you know Stealing, cheating, gluttony, that's not just with food. You can just be overstimulating yourself all the time, you know. Uh, deceit, gossiping, these are things that we actually do, all right? Ten Commandments, a lot of the times, are, are, we think of this first. Things that we do, sense of commission. I think that our rule breakers, a lot of times, struggle more with those. Because you're like, yeah, like, like I said, rules are meant to be broken, and my life is good with this thing. My life is good when I'm, I'm going around like cheating in all my classes and, and, and doing stuff behind my significant other's back and all this stuff. And you're like, why would I? Why would I repent? My life is pretty good right now. I don't feel too bad about it. If you identify with that, I'm sure you've already got your wheels spinning. And I'm sure that there's something in your mind even right now. That sin of commission. I think you guys get a lot of heat in a lot of the sermons. So I'm gonna let y'all go for a minute. Because I think a lot of the sermons are like unnecessarily focused on you guys when I think that this passage leads itself to the rule followers. Sorry guys. Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that's what they were. 
Man, they were following the rules. They were following the law to a T. And John comes out here and says, repent. It's like, what for? Man, I'm following the rules. Here's what I think it is. We have sins of commission. We have sins of omission. Omission, sins of omission are the things that we are leaving out. Rule followers. I think sometimes we are so focused on following the rules to a T that we neglect the greater tenets of the law, love, justice, and mercy. Rule followers, we are so focused on following the law to a T that we neglect the most important things sometimes. Man, I struggle with this. Even in, with school stuff. I don't know if, if you guys as professors have you do these like reading checks, like reading reports, we have to put down the percentage, you have to put down like how thoroughly you read, and dang, those things, as a rule follower, those things like freak me out, because I, I fill one out, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, did I actually read it that well? Did I actually read it that Am I lying? Am I lying? <laughs> and then, dude, one time I had, I had one this semester where I did that for like two days straight. And it's funny, it's like looking back even, like I was like actually like anxious about it, but looking back, it's kind of funny. But here's where it's not funny, is that I know that in doing that, in focusing so much on following the rules and being honest, I neglected opportunities to love. I was so caught up in my own head and following the rules to a T that I neglected love and justice and mercy. I think that's what we do. I think that's what the religious leaders were doing. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere either. Like you see this throughout the gospels. Jesus goes off on them for like a full chapter in Matthew 23 and he tells them, you are like a cup that has been washed on the outside but you leave the inside filthy. You look great on the outside, you look great. But on the inside, you are filthy, you are dirty. You are neglecting the greater aspects of the law. So I think the call, the invitation in this passage to each of us is to repent is to turn from our sin and to turn towards God, though that may look different as we have just discussed for each of us. The call is to open ourselves up to the kingdom of God, to tear down the walls, to allow the Holy Spirit to tear down those walls that block his arrival in our lives. I promised I'd tie this back to Advent. As I said, Advent is about waiting for the Lord's coming. Advent is about waiting for the Lord's coming. Past, present, future. It's about waiting for the Lord's coming. And repentance makes a way for the Lord's coming. If you don't write, if you're writing, taking notes, just if that's the only thing you're gonna write down, then write it down. Advent is about waiting for the Lord's coming and repentance makes a way for the Lord's coming. We talked about that past, present, future. This concept applies to each and every one of those. In the past, Jesus' first coming, the repentant, this is the most literal way you can take this passage. This is the most upfront way. The repentant, we're literally making a way for the kingdom of God, for Jesus. Because in their repentance, in their turning to God, they were setting themselves up to be able to receive the message that Jesus would bring. In the present, Right now, 
when we repent, when we turn away from our sins, the things that, the mountains, the valleys, all of it, the things that we are doing, the things that we are not doing, when we turn away from our sin and turn towards God, we make a way into our hearts for Jesus to arrive, to come. And then the second coming, we look towards Jesus' return. He will come back one day, and we are waiting on that. And repentance allows us, as we turn, as we live a lifestyle of turning towards God, repentance allows us to participate in the kingdom of God that is already here as we wait on the kingdom that is still to come. It's the same kingdom, it's just coming to fruition. It's coming fully. And this is not, so, so we're waiting. As we, part, as we wait, we are participating. We participate as we wait. Uh, sounds kind of weird, but this is not a concept that is, that is foreign. Think about it. We're all waiting on Christmas break, let's be honest. We're all ready. Most of us, maybe some of you aren't. I'm praying for you if you're not. Most of us are ready for Christmas break, we're waiting. But as we wait, it would be silly to just not do anything. It would be silly to just sit in your room. Some of you are like, speak for yourself, man, like, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but it would be silly to not study at all, to not do your homework. We participate in the coming of Christ as we wait in the same way. How do we do that? Care for the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. We live in a way that is consistent with the character of God that's not just individually, that's together. Can we all agree to do that? We participate in the kingdom of God as we wait for it to come more fully. So as we look back on Jesus' first coming, on Christmas, as we look towards his coming into our lives right now, and as we wait and participate in the coming kingdom when he returns, I think Christ calls and invites each of us to repentance. But this is not an obligation. No, it is a gift. It is a joyful opportunity. Why would you not want to turn away from your sin and towards God? I promise that even in the here and now, it is the most fulfilling life that you can live. So the band is here, and as they play one last song, and as they lead us in this response, I want you to reflect on repentance, on how God might be inviting you to participate in his kingdom now and in making a straight way for him now. Reflect on your mountains, those things that you are doing that need to be made low to make a way for the kingdom of God, on the valleys, on the things that you are neglecting that need to be made level for the, to make a way for the kingdom of God. And don't just reflect. When you know, make a commitment to actually turn to actually turn and when this comes to mind later that you will turn again and again and again towards God and I promise that it will be worth it. Acknowledging Jesus Christ as King, as Savior is always worth it. So will you reflect on that? Will you make a decision?